welcome to this episode of Drug Target Reviews podcast, sponsored by Solistic. I'm your host, Izzy Wood, the editorial assistant of Drug Target Review. This episode is the first part of our series, Cell Talk, a comprehensive guide to next-gen cell therapy. In this episode, we'll be outlining the current landscape of adoptive cell therapies, and I'm joined with Stefan Brown, the CTO at Solistic, but also joining us is Dr. Joe Brewer, the CSO at Adaptimune. So it's great to have you both here today, and I'm excited to begin our discussion. But before we do so, it'll be great to hear a bit about your backgrounds. Um, So Stefan, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Stefan Bram, founder and CTO of Solistic. I'm a stem cell biologist from training, worked in in labs in the Netherlands, in Australia, in the United Kingdom, always with pluripotent stem cells, focused on applications in drug discovery and cell therapy across cardiovascular, CNS and immune cells. Great, thank you. And over to you, Joe. Hi, I'm Joe Brewer. I'm the CSO at Adaptimmune. I've been working in the cell therapy field for the past 15 or so years, and I'm an immunologist by background um, working on cell biology. So we work on both autologous cell therapies and moved into the IPSC space later on. Great, thank you both. So we're here today to take a look into the current landscape of adoptive cell therapies. But I think to set the scene to begin with, maybe we could define adoptive cell therapies and discuss how they differ from cancer treatments. So whichever one of you wants to begin, that'd be great. Thank you. So adoptive cell therapy is, is defined as, as cell therapies that are that are modified outside the patient and that are essentially trained to recognize cancer and, and to kill those cancer cells. So compared to traditional cancer cell therapies, there are small molecules or antibodies infused to a patient. So they have been effective, but I think what we've also seen is quite a heterogeneous response. And uh, and as we all know, they have very severe side effects because they do not only treat cancer, but they also uh, attack other parts of the body just because of the fact that they're not so specific. Thank you, Stefan. And Joe, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, so I mean, adoptive cell therapy covers a vast array of of different areas. And I mean, my speciality is the immunotherapy space, um, dominantly the T-cell therapies. That's where the base of my knowledge is. But also, you know, there are many other cell types that can be used. And certainly the iPSC field is showing a lot of potential eye, um, pancreas. You know, the beauty of iPSCs is there's the potential to be to make those cells become any cell type that's found in the human body, which opens up a whole array of different things that we may get to in the future. But for now, in the cancer space, it's really dominated by T-cell therapies and potentially NK cell therapies. And the iPSCs are bringing a a really interesting spin on that field and then changing the way that we think about cell therapies to treat cancer. So all of it builds on the success of the autologous T-cell therapies and how they've been, you know, really working having some amazing results in the hematological space. Um, We're starting to see some data coming through in solid tumors and iPSCs give you an idea of where we could take that in the longer term future because there are certain key characteristics that make them more amenable to multiple changes. But really, it is a step-by-step understanding what the best cell types, how to basically fine-tune those cells, either through genetics or the way that you actually process the cells, we're still really trying to understand what the best phenotypes are, what the really important characteristics are to make those good therapies and good products. So expanding on this discussion, how would you say cell therapies can be expanded into cancer treatments? So, I mean, from my point of view, I think 
we've made some really good starts. Targets is one thing. Um, there are certainly good targets in certain cancers and not so good targets in others. That's where you see the CARs and the TCRs potentially playing to different strengths. But I think we also need to think about the specific barriers that certain tumor types bring up and the barriers that those cells will face in the patients. So there are lots of different angles. There are different metabolic pathways, different co-stimulatory pathways, lots of different things that people are working on. And I think it'll be a combination of all of those things as we start to knock down tumor type by tumor type. Um, but also there are very specific challenges in individual patients. And I think there's a lot of biology for us to get through before we truly understand how we can treat the majority rather than today we're making good inroads in certain niches and, and we need to develop that further. Great. Thanks, Joe. And Stefan? Yeah, to add to that, I think the biggest success in cancer cell therapy is, is in, in the hematologic space. So in leukemia, in lymphoma, in multiple myeloma. And one of the big challenges is to target other types of, of tumors. So the blood-based tumors are probably a little bit more easily accessible. And, and as Joe said, big successes with, with, with T-cells. Now the challenge is to make that success also work with solid tumors. And so there are multiple avenues to explore there. So novel targets, but also novel cell types. It could well be that, that, that an NK cell or a macrophage is more amenable for, for, for certain types of tumors. And that is something that, that we need to understand in the next couple of years. I completely agree with that. I think one of the powers of cell therapies is the ability of the cells to interact with multiple different cells when they're in the patient. And it's the effects, not just of the cells that you put in, but the effects that they have on the cells around them and how you bring that into the mix of treating the cancer. So that's one of the beauties of cell therapies is that they've got multiple different modes of action. And it may not be the cell that you introduce that actually has the final killing effect on the tumour. Great. Thank you both. And Joe, you were talking about iPSDs earlier. So could you tell me more about their role in adoptive cell therapy, please? So I think um, one of the beautiful qualities of iPSCs is the fact that you can get them to proliferate in theory indefinitely. I think we will really start to understand actually how long you can get those cells to live. But it's their expansion capacity and the ability to try and generate banks of cells which leads you into product consistency. There are lots of amazing things that you can in theory do with those cells if you can get them to differentiate into the right cell type that you want at the end of the day. So the key attribute about them is their potential to become any cell type, but understanding how to make it the cell type that you want is something that there's a lot of work to do. So some cell types are more easy to, to generate than others, and those differentiation protocols will really need to be fine-tuned in the long term. But we're making good inroads on that today. At Adaptimmune, we're focused wholly on alpha-beta T-cells. There are definitely there are data out there on gamma-delta T-cells and NK-cells, um, and potentially you know, it could be any immune cell of your choice in the long term if we get the right conditions to make the cells into the right phenotype that we think we need. And also there's the potential for that to develop further within the patient. Maybe less differentiated cells could be the future as we allow them to develop inside the patient rather than necessarily in a manufacturing process. And I think there's a lot to explore there. But really, the idea is that you can get this consistency, that you can make a bank of cells, whether you've done gene-edited a lot of gene edits and made different manipulations, but you can then generate a bank and you can do a differentiation process and you'll get consistent product. You should get the same quality of cells at the end of each process. 
which takes out a whole array of variability. So where we are today with our autologous cell therapies is every time we start a manufacturing process, we get different starting material from the patient. And those cells have been through whatever the patient's been through. So, you know, that depends on their age, it depends on the pre-treatment, depends what chemo regimens they've been on in the past. So the quality of those cells is not within your control. Whereas if you use an IPSC platform, then it is. You know a lot more about those cells and the quality of those cells and you should have consistency in batch to batch, which is one of the key strengths of, of the IPS platforms. Brilliant, thank you. And Stefan, have you got anything to add? I think that consistency from, from batch to batch is, is incredibly important. So instead of going to different donors, uh, you, you essentially have one donor for the lifetime of the product and that allows you to, to make that consistency. On top of that, it gives you a lot more freedom with respect to training those cells to become the best cell therapy if you have to do gene edits every time in every single batch and want to do that precise with the proper quality control. You are building a very complex manufacturing process. While if you do that in the undifferentiated IPSC that you can expand over time, you actually can make a sophisticated edited master cell bank for the lifetime of that product. And that gives you a lot of power to, to design the actual therapy with gene edits targeted against the tumor, maybe with gene edits to modulate the tumor microenvironment, maybe with a safety switch, um, other things that you can think of to, to make it the best possible therapy. Great, thank you. And so we did a poll on LinkedIn um, to learn about what our audience wanted to hear in this podcast and one of the key areas they went to learn about was the key differentiators between autologous and allergenic cell therapies and perhaps some of the advantages of one over the other so could we discuss that and go into a bit more detail about that yeah sure i mean so allergenic therapies you know that means that the cells come from somebody other than the patient so it could be from a healthy donor it could be from an ipsc just means allo just means other so it comes from somebody else and really it all started you know with bone marrow transplants where you know to treat leukemias and and it's been standard of care for decades there it's been really successful but it's a, a particular niche um, that, that we need to build from one of the things that needs to be overcome in the allergenic space is this ability for the cells to persist within the patient because normally you would reject those cells if they're foreign to you, you would reject them. So you want to make sure that the patient doesn't reject the allergenic cells and you also want to make sure that the donor cells don't attack the patient in an inappropriate way. So as I think Stefan mentioned a little bit earlier, one of the key things, one of the reasons you do those um, bone marrow transplants in the patients is to get a graft versus leukemia effect. And that's the effect you want, but you don't want them to have a graft versus their kidneys or a graft versus their liver effect. And so making sure that you actually have the toxic effect only on the tumor as the target rather than on the patient in general and that you don't cause irreparable damage. Those are the challenges with allergenic. You have to work out how to get the cells not rejected by the patient and also how to not do harm to the patient. And you can do that in you know various different ways, whether you do HLA matching or you do editing to remove those HLAs. That potentially gives you different mechanisms of rejection that you would have to, to target. So there are lots of there's lots of editing or you know genetic manipulation required to make that work or specific donor matching across a number of different markers, which is how you know the bone marrow field is working today. 
So those are some of the challenges and that's something that you don't have to worry about with autologous because if you take the cells from the patient, the patient lived happily with those cells before you're introducing whatever your construct is and that's the only change. Then they're getting back the same cells so you don't have to worry about either of those things. However, I mean, allogeneic gives you manufacturing control that you can't get in an autologous setting. One of the issues in autologous is you have to take those cells from the patient. The patient has to go through a leukophoresis, then you send them away, either for central manufacturing or sometimes on site where the patient is. It takes time to turn that around, release those cells, give them back to the patient. So it's quite a complicated procedure for both the patients and the hospitals and where they're treated. Whereas if you have an allogeneic therapy, it's much more like a normal drug. You know, your physician just orders cells and they arrive and you dose the patient, which is much more you know, what they would do with an antibody or with chemo. So from that side of things, allogeneic is much, much easier to give as a product. Um, you know, the complexity of having the patient involved in their own manufacturer is a logistical challenge. So there are definitely pros and cons to both. I mean, allogeneic holds so much future promise, but there are lots of technical hurdles that we need to overcome until we get there. I do think we will. I absolutely think that we will. But also the bar that autologous is setting for us is changing. So when we first started in this field, it was really common to have really long turnaround times where patients would be waiting potentially a couple of months before they would get their cells back. But that time is shortening from autologous and allogeneic. In autologous, you know, each product affects only one patient. The regulators view an allo product that could affect potentially hundreds of patients in a very different way. The regulatory bar is much higher. And we need to actually generate the right data to get the regulators comfortable. There are so many more things we don't know in the allogeneic space than we do in autologous today because of the natures of the way these therapies are being developed. So that will change with time. But those are big things. Those are the next, I think, big challenges that we need to face in the field. Definitely. Thanks, Joe. And Stefan, have you got anything to go on from? Yeah, so, so I fully agree. There, there are additional challenges with allogeneic cell therapy. The reason why, why we are doing this and why we believe this is the right road is the fact that autologous is very expensive and also very difficult to produce. So the largest factories right now maybe produce 5,000 doses a year. So that, that means that you almost have to release 20 batches a day, which is an enormous challenge. The, the industry has never tried this before and never has been successful to scale to this level or even beyond. So the harsh reality is that there is incredible science that actually cures patients and that is probably well positioned to become first or second line treatment. But, but the healthcare systems cannot pay for it. The infrastructure is not there to, to scale it up. And so at the end of the day, it's rate limited and patients that could benefit from the therapy will not benefit from the therapy. So it does require a different approach. With allogeneic, that capacity of 5,000 doses, you might actually produce that in, in, in one batch or in a few batches. So by scaling up the same product for every single patient, you can reduce the cost of goods of the manufacturing. Uh, you can make it accessible for patients like a normal product, as Joe mentioned. And so that, that is the, the motivation to get these next generation treatments to, uh, to the patients. Great. Thank you both. And what would you say are some of the most promising areas currently in adoptive cell therapy and any breakthroughs that have been made recently? So for me, I think I'm really excited about the data we're starting to see in solid tumours. Um, so 
at Adapt Immune ourselves, we have our May Day 4 data where we're starting to see signals. We're going for a BLA application with our first gen product in synovial sarcoma, and we're seeing signals in ovarian and head and neck and bladder cancer, which we hope to develop, which is really pushing the boundaries of what's available right now. And I think, you know, that this is the start of something new. There are other companies, I think Imatics just released some brilliant PRAME data as well. Solid tumors are starting to really be able to we're starting to think about the fact that we will be able to tackle solid tumors in the same way that hematological cancers are really impressively served today with cell therapies. And as as Stefan mentioned, you know, that does lead to supply issues and, and manufacturing challenges. But also there are some amazing changes in the manufacturing space as well. And looking at automation of these processes, you know, they're difficult processes to do. I mean, and also allogeneic processes are difficult processes to do, and they're often incredibly long in time. Just because the patient doesn't see that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be cheaper today. But in the long-term future, that scale will out. Um, you know, these things will happen. It requires a lot of a lot of changes in the technology that's available for doing this. When we look at, you know, how cell therapies have evolved, some of the initial data that came out from UPenn, you know, was using old equipment from the 70s for purposes of which it was never designed to be used to, whether, to make the first like cell therapy processes. And then you look at the way those systems are evolving into different bioreactors, different forms of closed systems and ways of trying to remove the manual parts of the processes. There's massive changes in the manufacturing space, which is a key part of making these therapies actually possible you know and and there are limits in the autologous space as Stefan mentioned and that's the the future promise of allogeneic that maybe we can overcome some of those and get to much higher numbers and much higher scales but we still have to prove that I mean we're not there yet but there will be a lot of work that we can a lot of parallels we can draw between the two between autologous and allogeneic and I do think that for a long time both will be relevant for a very long time they'll go hand in hand and long term the switch to allogeneic I think will take quite some time. Yeah, that all sounds very promising. So thank you. Um, Stefan? Yeah, so for me, um, so the pluripotent stem cell field, the human pluripotent stem cell field is approximately 25 years old. The iPSC field, 15 years, a little bit longer. And so if I look back at the early days, we, we were staring at the, the cells um, a lot of us started to work on cardiomyocytes because when the cells started contracting, we at least knew what, what we were making. And so I just remember the days that we were cutting little pieces of beating cells through a microscope. And so we, 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 we were maybe producing like 1,000 or 5,000 cells and just enough to do a little bit of characterization or do a, a very small animal experiment. Now we are starting to speak about batches of billions of cells. And so the real application, the real promise has always been there, but I feel that, that, that now we are in a position where we can start to execute and really bring these cells forward as new therapy. So the pieces of the puzzle are coming together with the massive advancements in, in autologous with IPSC, hopefully as a better cell type to do this and, and to make it more accessible. Great, thank you. And being in this position to start being able to execute these things and the pieces of the puzzle coming together for you, how would you say adoptive cell therapies are changing the landscape of cancer treatment and what impact are they likely to have on the future and in the future? So I think the massive impact is on the patients themselves. I mean, we've been lucky enough to have some patients come in to speak to us about you know what it's like to be on a cell therapy versus 
the multiple rounds of chemo that they've had to endure before. And one patient came in and said, you know, I had to have the lympho depletion, the chemo, and I had the cells. And then I was out being a normal parent. I was standing on, you know, the sidelines at the football game watching my kids play football. I wasn't at home, unable to get out of bed, throwing up and feeling dreadful for a long period of time. And also the fact that when it works, often it's a single dose of cells. And then these patients, for some of them, they can be years out and they can be leading a completely normal life. And that doesn't really happen with anything else. I think, you know, we have an amazing success in the checkpoint inhibitors. That's another space where, you know, using the immune system in a different way. There are in some patients where you get the effectively functional cures. But it's a case of it doesn't happen for everyone. And it's the same with cell therapy. It doesn't work for everyone. But the numbers where it, you know, where it does work are really great. And I think we shouldn't underestimate what we're up against. So yes, we're dealing with very complicated cell therapies that are hard to make and they're expensive. But we need to measure this in terms of quality of life and the duration of the responses that we can generate. So in certain areas in synovial sarcoma, we're seeing a median duration of response of a year, which is there is nothing like that in that patient population at this moment in time. And that's why, you know, the payers are trying to be creative about ways that we can try and afford to pay for these things, because a really interesting point of view is, you know, how many years of extra life do you potentially give somebody? And with sarcoma, it's a tumor of, of young patients, unfortunately. And so you are, you know, giving somebody maybe 50 years of extra life if they're in you know, if they're in their teens or 20s. And we have to start thinking about different ways of modeling that. And I think um, certainly the CAR-T therapies that are on the market today, they're really changing the paradigm of how we think about treating patients and paying for it. And we're having to make, you know, just as we've had to be innovative in the science to make these cells in the first place, we have to be innovative in the way that we treat the patients and innovative in the way that we pay for the patients. And cell therapies are really challenging all of our systems. You know, we need to check, make lots of changes to be able to accommodate them. But you're starting to see that happen. And, you know, there are big farmers invested like Novartis and BMS, and they are changing that paradigm, which then helps all the rest of us who are you know, dealing in, in other therapies. And, and the allogeneic space will come along afterwards. I think it will be built on those same building blocks of how we afford and pay for these things. And that's really, you know, how how it's so different from everything else. And what we're really looking is to try and generate functional cures and we need to work on the durability of those. And so we're seeing signals in solid tumors now and we need to understand, you know, how can we keep that going? How can we make sure that we actually get more people into that, not just responding, but into those durable responses that that will be life-changing for those patients? And Stefan, how do you think these therapies are changing the landscape of cancer treatment? Yeah, so I, I think that the major evolution is is coming from movement to, to novel novel indications within the oncology space. So so as as mentioned before, in hematology it's pretty well established. So I hope to see that in that space we are moving from third or fourth line treatment. To, to second or first line treatment because I do expect that by treating patients that, that are more fit that you might even get a better response. But, but okay, so at, at the end of the day, that, that is just a small part of the total landscape of patients. 
And so with, with the fact that, that we can now start to manufacture different cell types with different modes of actions, the novel targets that are coming out, uh, a better understanding how we can make an allo cell therapy, uh, I think there, there are very strong rationals for belief that this is going to work for a variety of solid tumors. And so I hope to, that, that we are going to see in the next couple of years that that becomes a reality. Yeah, great. Thank you. And I think to round off today, how do you both see the field of adoptive cell therapies evolving over the next decade? And what implications might this have for patient healthcare providers, which you kind of touched on before? Right. So I see that today the field is, it belongs to the autologous cell therapies. And I think that will continue probably for the next decade. But whilst we're in that space, I think the allogeneic cell therapies will win out in the end. I think they will deliver for more patients and that ability to supply the promise that they have, I think, is is the future. And certainly I'm I'm a full believer that the IPS platforms are the end game rather than the healthy donor approaches. That may be like an intermediate step, but certainly the scale that IPSC potentially give you is what's required. I think and that as far as I'm aware, there is nothing else close to it. You know, it's up to us to work out how to how to get it into to the scale that we need to supply to the patients. I think it's um, these things are all things that we need to to work on. And I think because it's that there is so much nuance and so much biological understanding, I think I would love to be able to get to the point where you need a a much reduced number of cells because then you know the number of doses you'd get per batch would be much more economically viable. I think understanding how to beat those challenges of, you know, rejection, that's going to take us some time. And I think we need iterations in clinical trials. We need to get these into patients and we need to learn and go back and make changes. And I think that's the thing that the allogeneic space has some more technical challenges to overcome in terms of actually how it works in the patient. But long term, I think we will definitely hit those. And I think the manufacturing will be completely revolutionized in the allogeneic space. Um, the yields will be really important to making these mainstream. And hopefully, you know, we'll, those will get to the point where you can treat almost anybody with a cell type that, and a target that works for their tumor. That's the other thing, I think, is that we can use these cells in a very specific way that we'll be able to cover more patients with a, a vast array of products where for some indications and some patients, it might be a macrophage or others, it might be a T-cell or it might be NK cells. You know, we've got lots of options and that's where there's a lot to navigate. And I think that's going to take us some decades to get through all of those. Great. Thank you, Joe. And Stefan, what does the next decade for cell therapy look like for you? Yeah, I think the, the manufacturing of this is going to be very important, as, as, as Joe said. So what I always tell to my teams is that this combines some of the fun and challenges that, that cell therapy manufacturing had combined with biologics manufacturing. So in biologics manufacturing, scale has always been important. So there is an understanding how you manufacture cells that are typically completely transformed that that how you grow them at large volumes. But now we are going to put iPSCs, so cells that can still become everything, into these large volume reactors. And so that's combining the most difficult biology with the largest scale that you can think about. So it's a total 
unknown territory for lots of companies, if I'm totally honest. So the reason why it took a long time before the promise of the repotent stem cells became real, it's sent exactly around that manufacturing. So the understanding how you drive that differentiation process effectively. And so the fact that we now do this in completely defined media with specific growth factors, with specific small molecules, means that, that we understand what we're doing. And so the next decade is all about all about the scale up because that should drive the cost down and the access up. Great. Thank you both. So I'm afraid that's all we have time for today in this discussion. But I want to say a massive thank you to Stefan and Joe for joining me on today's podcast and for making such excellent points. And it's been great to speak with you both today. So thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this Drug Target Review podcast sponsored by Solistic. I've been Izzy Wood, the editorial assistant at Drug Target Review. And make sure to keep an eye out for our next episode of this cell therapies series, which will be on overcoming challenges and implementing solutions for adoptive cell therapies.